Election College, episode number 261. William McKinley, part two. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for election college, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. Jason, we've talked about William McKinley up to the point where he is going to run for president in 1896. And actually, that was even a little bit more than we talked about. We didn't even say anything about him running for president. We just said the election was coming up. You caught me off guard totally, man. <laughs> I know. I'm like what? It's kind of crazy. Yeah. But so we're really not sure. When does William McKinley decide he wants to run for president? There's no things in any of his documents or his diaries or confidential letters or anything that they can find that says he had any intentions of 100% running for president. But guess what? He did. And he uh, really gets a lot of money from his friend Mark Hanna. And um, Mark Hanna also has a lot of organizational skills and things like that. So McKinley is kind of quietly sitting back, building support for a presidential run in 1895 and 1896. So again, kind of a non-traditional launch to his campaign. We're not really sure when it happened, but it happened. Yeah. Hanna's going east. He's going south. Bosses are getting together. They're like, here you go. National convention happens in June of 1896. He's got the delegates. He's sitting in Canton. <laughs> it just blows my mind that you have this convention that's going on and they're celebrating you and you're chilling out. <laughs> yeah, he's he's there in Canton. He just stays there the whole time, the whole campaign. And uh, he hugs his mom, hugs his wife. His friends gather around. And uh, hear him talk from his porch. He doesn't leave his porch. He stays there the whole campaign. And every day, except Sunday, McKinley is on the porch. The railroad comes. People get off. (laughs) McKinley, he stays on his porch. I love this. And during this time, he's running against William Jennings Bryan who had uh, won the Democratic Nationals Convention's nomination. And, of course, you know, William Jennings Bryan has the Cross of Gold speech, and we have an episode about that you can listen to sometime. And he's got a lot of money he's sinking into things, and he's all eloquent, and he's all out there going on the train and, you know, probably probably standing on top of trains, throwing out candy to the kids. I I made that part up. But basically, he is just really out there and really charismatic and McKinley is being pressured to go out and do the same kind of thing. But McKinley knows that he's just not going to be able to do that. And so uh, at one point he says, I might just as well set up a trapeze on my front lawn and compete with some professional athlete as go out speaking against Brian. I have to think when I speak. So it becomes pretty evident that McKinley's not going to be able to match him on a uh, word per word basis. So yeah, he just sits back on his campaign front porch campaign and 
Everybody comes to him. Yeah. They only get this. I didn't realize this until researching this episode, even after reading the book, I think. Um, it might be in there. Maybe I just missed it. But in the North, he wins every city that has more than 100,000 people, except for Denver, Colorado. Wow. Like everybody is supporting McKinley in the North. It's pretty incredible. Wild. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. So he gets sworn in. McKinley does. Otherwise, we'd probably be talking about <laughs> William Jennings Bryan right now, uh, which we have talked about William Jennings Bryan. That's right. He's got an episode or two, right? Yeah. Um, so he gets sworn in in March of 1897, and you can view a video of it because technology is progressing and it's awesome. 1897, video of, well, film of McKinley getting inaugurated. And he's doing good, right? And he's doing well. And he appoints a rock star cabinet. It's kind of questionable why he appointed John Sherman as a secretary of state. Uh, he's kind of old. And people are saying this dude's lost his mind. But other than that, he's kind of got the all-star team of Republicans. And speaking of all-star team, he decides to nominate this young guy out in New York named Theodore Roosevelt as the head of the New York City Police Commission. And he's got kind of a reputation of being bold and loud and boisterous and uh he's gonna come back yeah we might see him again that's a possibility so there's all sorts of struggles happening in cuba especially and isn't that a surprise uh the rebels in cuba had really been trying to get free from the spanish rule and by 1895 it breaks out into a war and the the spanish are going hard against the Cubans and super hard at some point. And the American public in general is very in favor of the citizens of Cuba. So McKinley really prefers to have a more of a peaceful approach, you know, negotiate things out and maybe Spain could be, could have their arm twists a little bit to give Cuba their independence. But doesn't happen. They're very uh, stubborn. I don't mean that in a negative way, because if I had a country that I wanted to keep, I would be stubborn about it too. But they're very stubborn about wanting to keep their country, dang it. And uh, the, the the Cubans were like, no, we're not going to do this. And the Americans were like, well, I guess we're, we're going to have to help them out. Yeah. So there's this cartoon that shows the American people represented by Colombia, and she's got her arms reached out to the oppressed people of Cuba and uncle Sam representing the government of America is kind of sitting on the guns doing nothing. So American sentiment is very much, Hey, we want to help the Cuban people out because Cuba does not want to be part of Spain. And uncle Sam is just kind of chilling out being like, eh. yeah. So there's that. It's interesting how public perception changes too. At different points in history. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a kind of a big point because McKinley says, yeah, we'll send the USS Maine down there to make sure that all the American lives and property that they are protected. And on February 15th, 
the USS Maine exploded and sank, and it killed 266 men. So there's this whole question of how what happened. Was there a bomb? Did it explode some other way? Was it just the mechanics were bad? And during this, people kind of lose sight of the fact that Spain had actually lost control of Cuba. And so McKinley uh, gets together a court of inquiry to determine whether or not the explosion was accidental. And negotiations with Spain are still uh, going to be considered in that ordeal. And they find out that the main was actually blown up by an underwater mine. And so McKinley's like, okay, look, we are getting Cuba. Spain says, no, you aren't. McKinley says, hey, Congress, let's do this. And Congress says, okay, we're declaring war. Yeah, so we could probably do a whole episode on the Spanish-American War. Um, What you need to know, though, is there's some really cool sites around Florida, all along the East Coast, actually, where you can see where we have fortified the forts that were already existing, you know, like Civil War era forts even you'll see different remnants from this era where there's cannons and stuff and well we never had to use them because we kind of whipped their tails right (laughs) we defeated the spanish and what ends up happening is we get control of the philippines we get control well we get a say in what goes on in cuba we don't annex cuba that is specifically uh, with the teller amendment in the uh, declaration of war against Spain, uh, we always said, no, we're not going to annex Cuba because we're for the Cuban people. Uh, we do, however, uh, along with the Philippines, take control of Puerto Rico. And that's the reason Puerto Rico is a territory today because of this era. Anyway, um, McKinley and his cabinet, they say, Spain, get out of Cuba, get out of Puerto Rico. Um, we have some disagreements about what to do exactly with Philippines. It's kind of interesting, Ben. Have, did you know this, that there was a time where the Philippines was like, hey, America, make us a state? And we were kind of like, no, pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But McKinley uh, says, that's it. We've got it. We've got Puerto Rico. We've got Guam now. Uh, Spain is out of Cuba. And, hey, for all your trouble, Spain, here's 20 million bucks. (laughs) But they do it, and uh, the Senate approves it, and then it's on to Hawaii. Right. So McKinley is really pushing for Hawaii being annexed. And this is right after the queen had been overthrown uh, because people wanted her to have a little bit more of a limited role. She says no. There we go. That's what happens. And McKinley is really a supporter of the annexation and Congress is being lobbied to act, but they're not acting fast enough for McKinley. So he basically pushes it ahead and says, look, we're going to do this. Um, We really need to do this. And McKinley was kind of instrumental in making sure that Hawaii was annexed. And uh, for him, it was just as important that they annex Hawaii as it was really anywhere else because it was a part of that manifest destiny. It was a part of that bigger ideal of continuing to move the country forward. But at the same time, it was about, I don't want to say rescuing, but in his mind, rescuing the people of Hawaii. And so this continues in other ways. You know, there were um, they, like 
McKinley's era continued to have some other big relationship pieces as far as influence goes amongst other uh, parts of the world and parts of the world that we had not previously expanded into. So it is also important to note that McKinley was pretty big on civil rights. And he, when he was governor, he had spoken out against lynching. Of course, a decent human being would do that. And pretty much all the African-Americans who were able to vote in 1896 voted for him. But at this point, he is kind of making some appointments of African-Americans to low-level posts, but posts nonetheless. And the problem is, to some extent, that these posts are less than what African-Americans had received underneath previous Republican administrations. So uh, we do see the McKinley administration really kind of not respond to racial violence as much as they should have, uh, or at least as much as the public thought they should have. And this, of course, loses him quite a bit of African-American support. And the leaders of the African-American community criticize him and think he should have done more, but he really just kind of doesn't act uh, any further. Yeah. So his presidency, the first term, is marked with he's got some domestic issues going on. He's doing his thing, playing the political game a little bit, especially when trying to appeal uh, to Southerners. Um, Internationally, we've never seen a president who has reached out so much, you know, as far as getting involved with um, the issues going on in Cuba. Somebody actually doing something in Cuba, you know, it's been from really just shortly after the United States of America is a country that we decide to do anything about Cuba. There it is, 90 miles off the coast. And there was always this talk of, should we take them over? Should we not? McKinley actually does something about it. China, he's got this open door policy with China and there's the issue of the Boxer Rebellion and um, some of the things going on with Westerners, including missionaries who were there in China where American soldiers were sent in (laughs) to China. You never really saw this kind of international presence going on until McKinley. There was always talk of it, but actually acting upon it. And then the issue of tariffs. He was all about America first. He was all about high tariffs for um, imports and so on. So this sounds like a modern presidency, doesn't it, Ben? It does, indeed. And that's where we find everybody in the year 1900. Because McKinley says, I'm going to run again. And for my vice president... I'm going to get this guy, Theodore Roosevelt, to run alongside me because, let's face it, we need a war hero or at least a guy who, uh, you know, was a rough rider (laughs) to come alongside McKinley and boost his stature on the national stage. And that's exactly what he does. Right. So at this point, he is pretty much a shoe in for the Republican Party, at least. They barely even need to vote to make sure that he gets the nomination. And then when it comes to the election, 
he still wins. He gets the largest victory for any Republican since 1872, so about 30 years. William Jennings Bryan gets about four states other than the ones that were like solid in the South. And uh, McKinley even wins William Jennings Bryan's home state of Nebraska. So he really kind of rocked the world. So after he gets inaugurated on March 4th, 1901, for the second time, he goes on vacation. They go away for six weeks. He and Ida go away. And they're pretty much traveling by train, but uh, they did take some uh, other types of expositions. And while they're in California, Ida falls ill. And William is no longer really able to do a lot of public events. He cancels a bunch of speeches that he had planned to give make sure that she gets home safely. So moving on, McKinley, when they get back home, he is he pretty much enjoys meeting with the public. But there had been a lot of assassinations around the world, uh, especially in Europe uh, previously. And the staff was kind of trying to remove some of his public appearances. And McKinley is like, no, I refuse. Remember, I'm the guy who ran the front porch campaign. That's who I am. And so uh, his staff arranged some additional security for him. Yeah. And you talk about foreshadowing because here he is. He's going to go to this big exposition that's going on in Buffalo. And the president, he speaks at the fairgrounds there in Buffalo to some 50,000 people. That was his last speech because a madman, we're going to call him Leon, he wants to kill the president. And what ends up happening is they're having this meet and greet at the Temple of Music. And Leon comes up to McKinley, shoots him right there. Like he's going to shake his hand and he's got his gun and a handkerchief and he shoots McKinley twice in the abdomen. Okay, what do you do when you get shot? I <laughs> fall on the ground. Yeah. Scream. It, right. The first thing McKinley does is he goes, break it to Ida gently. Man, yeah, what a sure. guy. The second thing he does is equally as impressive. He says, the guy who shot me, call the crowd off of him. Because everybody knew who did it call the crowd off of him and had he not made them do that that guy would have been dead for sure yeah and get this ben so they got this mm-hmm. x-ray machine that's like on exhibit because this is big you know international like, exposition you're showing off all the tech stuff right uh they didn't use it <laughs> they just kind of were like well um take him over to this house and have some doctors wait on him see what to do and gangrene sets in. They don't know what to do to treat him. And the gangrene is poisoning his blood. And just a few days later, he's taking a severe turn for the worse. And the next day on September 14th, McKinley dies. Yeah. Really sad. Definitely. Ah, you said all these episodes are sad at the end, but that's all right. It's history. So the guy who shoots him, he obviously gets found 
pretty much guilty, gets sentenced to death and put to death by electric chair just a month later, maybe a month and a half at most. So they moved quickly on this individual. Finley is dead and buried at this point, and he is uh, Westlawn Cemetery in Canton. And everybody kind of expects Ida not to live very long after her husband passes away. And many people kind of uh, assume that's going to happen when either people who are older or people who are very dependent upon each other uh, pass away. But it doesn't. And the former first lady accompanies her husband on the funeral train. And she wasn't able to attend the services in Washington or Canton. But she does kind of sit outside the door and listen. Uh, She passed away about six years after that. And just barely missed seeing the large monument that was made uh, to honor her husband. Yeah. So if it really hadn't been for Theodore Roosevelt, this is just my own Mm -hmm. personal commentary. If it wasn't for somebody as boisterous and popular and who just loved life and the white house and the whole deal of the presidency, then Theodore Roosevelt, we'd probably hear a lot more about William McKinley. I definitely agree. And Um, that's where the next episode, ladies and gentlemen, you need to tune in because we are going to talk a little bit more about the personal side of William McKinley. You know, we've, we've spoken a little bit about how he loved his wife so much. Um, that really comes out in the book called President McKinley, uh, from Simon and Schuster, uh, written by Robert D. Mary. Absolutely. And again, we'll put another link to that in the show notes. If you want to check it out, uh, we'll put a link to Amazon. We think it's a a good endeavor. We also think a good endeavor is interacting with us. We'd like to talk to you. And if you head over to Twitter, Facebook, whatever, uh, we'll probably say hi. Yeah. And while you're doing all this interacting on the interwebs, because that's what you do when you get on the internet. Hopefully. Hopefully you're not weird. Uh, Go ahead and... Go to electioncollege.com slash reviews. That's going to take you straight over to our iTunes listing. And that's where you can leave us a rating and review. It helps us so much. And yes, we do a happy dance every time. I think angels do like historical angels, right. not like biblical angels. The history angels for sure. Well, do his, the history stuff. angels who are, who are like <laughs> cherubs with beards. Um, they, they do a little jig. I don't know if that's accurate, but I'm willing to accept it. Right then. So (laughs) I guess we'll leave it at that. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening.